Money Trap Lane, Crybaby Alley, Scuttlebutt Court, the GB's Pellicle Steps, he said. Tunnels everywhere. They were lucky to find it after only three or four. Mr. Rascal must have had lodgings in half the streets in the area, including Empirical Crescent. But why? said Sir Reynolds, stitched. I mean, why dig tunnels everywhere? Tell him, Carrot, said Vimes, drawing a line across the city. Carrot cleared his throat. Because they were dwarfs, sir, and deep downers at that, he said. It wouldn't occur to them not to dig, and mostly it'd be just a matter of clearing out bedded rooms in any case. That's a stroll to a dwarf, and they were laying rails, so they could take the spoil out anywhere they wanted. Yes, but surely, uh, Sir Reynold began. They were listening out for something talking at the bottom of an old well, said Vimes, still bending over the map. What chance that'd still be visible? and people can get a bit iffy when a bunch of dwarfs turn up and start digging holes in the garden. It'll be very slow, surely. Well, yes, sir, but it would be in the dark, under their control and secret, said Carrot. They could go anywhere they wanted. They could zigzag around if they weren't certain. They could home in with their listening tube, and they'd never have to speak to a human or see daylight. Dark, controllable, and secret. Deep downers, in a nutshell, said Vimes. This is very exciting, said Sir Reynold. "'and they dug into my museum.' "'Over to you, Fred,' said Vimes, "'carefully drawing a line across the map. "'Eh, right,' said Fred Colon. "'Eh, Nobby and me found out where only a couple of hours ago,' he said, "'thinking it wisest not to add after Mr. Vimes yelled at us "'and made us tell him every last detail "'and then sent us back and told us what to look for. "'What he did add was, "'They were pretty clever, sir. "'The mortar even looked dirty. "'I bet you're saying to yourself, "'Aha, sir.' "'I am,' said Sir Reynold, bewildered. I would normally say, my goodness. Expect your saint yourself, aha, how were they able to build up the wall again after they'd got the muriel out, sir? And we reckon, well, I imagine one dwarf stayed behind to make good lay low, as you would say, and wandered out in the morning, said Sir Reynold. There were people going in and out all the time. We were looking for a big painting, after all, not a person. "'Yes, sir. We reckon one dwarf stayed behind to make good, lay low, and wandered out in the morning. "'There were people going in and out all the time. You were looking for a big painting, after all, not a person,' said Fred Colon. "'He'd been very pleased to come up with that theory, so he was going to say it out loud, no matter what.' Vimes tapped the map. "'And here, Sir Reynold, is where a troll-called brick fell through a cellar floor into their tunnel,' he said. He also told us he saw something in the main mine which sounds very much like the rascal. But alas, you have not found it, said Sir Reynold. I'm sorry, sir, it's probably long gone out of the city. But why, said the curator, they could have studied it in the museum. We're very interactive these days. Interactive, said Vimes. What do you mean? Well, people can look at the pictures as much as they want, said Sir Reynold. He sounded a little annoyed. People shouldn't ask that kind of question. And the pictures do what, exactly? Ah, uh, hang there, Commander, said Sir Reynold. Of course. So what you mean is, people can come and look at the pictures, and the pictures, for their part, are looked at. Rather like that, yes, said the curator. He thought for a moment, aware that this probably wasn't sufficient, and added, but dynamically. You mean the people are moved by the pictures, sir, said Carrot. Yes, said Sir Reynold with huge relief. Well done. That's just what happens. And we've had the rascal on public display for years. We even had a stepladder in case people want to examine the mountains. Sometimes people come in with a bee in their bonnet that one of the warriors is pointing to some barely visible cave or something. Frankly, if there was some secret, I would have found it by now. There was no point to the theft. Unless someone had found the secret and didn't want anyone else to find it, said Vimes. That would be rather a coincidence, wouldn't it, Commander? It's not that anything has just changed recently, Mr. Rascal didn't turn up and paint another mountain, and, although I hate to say this, just destroying the painting would have been enough. Vimes walked around the table. All the bits, he thought. I must have all the bits by now. Let's start with this legend of a dwarf turning up, nearly dead, weeks after the battle, babbling about treasure. All right. Then it might have been this talking cube thing, Vimes thought. 
He survived the battle, hid out somewhere, and he's got this thing, and it's important. He's got to get it somewhere safe. No, maybe he's got to get people to listen to it. And, of course, he doesn't take it with him, because there's still likely to be trolls wandering the area, and right now they'll be in a mood to club first and try to think up some questions later. He needs some bodyguards. He gets as far as some humans, but when he's leading them back to the place where it's hidden, he finally dies. Forward two thousand years. Would a cube last that long? Hell, they bob up in molten lava. So, it's lying there. Methodia Rascal comes along looking for a nice view or something, and he looks down, and there it is. Well, I have to accept that he did, because he found it and got it talking, who knows how. But he couldn't stop it. He drops it down the well. The dwarfs find it. They listen to the box, but hate what they hear. They hate it so much that Ham Crusher has four miners killed just because they heard it too. So why the painting? It shows what the box is talking about, where the box is. If you've got the box in your hand, isn't that it? Anyway, whose was the voice doing the speaking? It could be anybody. Why would you believe what it said? He was aware of Sir Reynold talking to Carrot. Said your Sergeant Colon here, the painting is set several miles from where the actual battle was fought. It's in entirely the wrong part of Cumvalier. That's just about the one thing both sides are agreed on. So why did he set it there? said Vimes, staring at the table as if hoping to draw a clue from it by willpower alone. Who knows? It's all Cumvalier. There are about 250 square miles of the place. I imagine he just chose somewhere that looked dramatic. Would you chaps like a cup of tea? said Lady Sybil from the door. I felt it a bit of a loose end, so I made a pot. And you should be getting your head down, Sam. Sam Vimes looked panicky, a figure of authority caught once again in a domestic situation. Oh, Lady Sybil, they took the rascal, said Sir Reynold. I know it belonged to your family. My grandfather said it was just a damn nuisance, said Sybil. He used to let me unroll it on the floor of the ballroom. I used to name all the dwarfs. We looked for the secret, because he said there was a hidden treasure, and the painting showed you where it was. Of course, we never found it, but it kept me quiet on rainy afternoons. Oh, it wasn't great art, said Sir Reynold, and the man was quite mad, of course, but somehow it spoke to people. I wish it would say something to me, said Vimes. You really don't need to make tea for people, dear. One of the officers— Nonsense! We must be hospitable, said Sybil. Of course. People tried to copy it, said the curator, accepting a cup. Oh, dear, they were terrible. A painting fifty feet long and ten feet deep is really quite impossible to copy with any kind of accuracy. Not if you lay it out on the ballroom floor and get a man to make you a pantograph, said Sybil, pouring tea. This teapot is really a disgrace, Sam, worse than the urn. Doesn't anyone ever clean it out? She looked up at their faces. Did I say something wrong? she said. You made a copy of the rascal, said Sir Reynold. Oh, yes, the whole thing, on a scale of one to five, said Sybil. I was fourteen. It was a school project. We were doing dwarf history, you see, and, well, since we owned that painting, it was too good to miss. You know what a pantograph is, don't you? It's a very simple way of making larger or smaller copies of a painting using geometry, some wooden levers, and a sharp pencil. Actually, I did it as five panels ten feet square, that's full size, to make sure I got all the detail, and then I did the one-fifth scale version to display it, as poor Mr. Rascal wanted it displayed. I got full marks from Miss Turpitude. She was our math teacher, you know. She wore her hair in a bun with a pair of compasses and a ruler stuck in it. She used to say that a girl who knew how to use a set square and protractor would go a long way in life. What a shame you no longer have it, said Sir Reynold. Why should you say that, Sir Reynold, said Sybil. I'm sure I've still got it somewhere. I had it hanging up from the ceiling of my room for some time. Let me think. Did we take it with us when we moved? I'm sure. She looked up brightly. Ah, yes. Have you ever been up to the attics here, Sam? No, said Vimes. Now's the time, then. I've never been on a girl's night out before, said Cheery, as they walked a little uncertainly through the night-time city. Was that last bit supposed to happen? What bit was that? said Sally. The bit where the bar was set on fire. Not usually, said Angua. 
I've never seen men fight over a woman before, Chiddy went on. Yeah, that was something, wasn't it? said Sally. They'd dropped Tawny off at her home. She'd been in quite a thoughtful frame of mind. And all she did was smile at a man, said Cheery. Yes, said Angua. She was trying to concentrate on walking. It'd be a bit of a shame for Nobby if she lets that go to her head, though, said Cheery. Save me from talkative drunks. Drinks. Drunks, Angua thought. She said, Yes, but what about Miss Pushpram? She's thrown some quite expensive fish at Nobby over the years. We've struck a blow for our womanhood, Sally declared loudly. Shoes, men, coffins, never accept the first one you see. Oh, shoes, said Cheery. I can talk about shoes. Has anyone seen the new Jan Rockhammer solid copper slingbacks? Uh, we don't go to a metal worker for our footwear, dear, said Sally. Uh, I, I think I'm going to be sick. Serves you right for drinking vine, said Angua maliciously. Ah, oh, ha, ha, said the vampire from the shadows. I'm perfectly fine with sarcastic pause vine, thank you. What I shouldn't have drunk was sticky drinks with names made up by people with less sense of humour than... Uh, oh, excuse me, oh, no. You're all right, said Cheery. I've just thrown up a small hilarious paper umbrella. Oh, dear. And a sparkler. Is that you, Sergeant Angua? said a voice in the gloom. A lantern was opened and lit the approaching face of Constable Visit. As he approached, she could just make out the thick wad of pamphlets under his other arm. Hello, Washpot, she said. What's up? Looks like a twist of lemon, said a damp voice from the shadows. Mr. Vimes sent me to search the dens of iniquity and low places of sin for you, said Visit. And the uh, literature, said Angua. By the way, the words nothing personal could have so easily been added to that last sentence. Since I was having to tour the temples of vice, Sergeant, I thought I could do alms holy work at the same time, said Visit, whose indefatigable evangelical zeal triumphed over all adversity. They say there's one in every police station. Constable, visit the ungodly with explanatory pamphlets was enough for two. Sometimes whole bars full of people would lie down on the floor with the lights out when they heard he was coming down the street. There were sounds of retching from the darkness. "'Woe unto those who abuseth the vine,' said Constable Visit. He caught the expression on Angua's face and added, "'No offence meant.' "'We've been through all that,' moaned Sally. "'What does he want, Washpot?' said Angua. "'It's about Coombe Valley again. He wants you back at the yard.' "'But we were stood down,' Sally complained. "'Sorry,' said Visit cheerfully. "'I reckon you've been stood up again.' "'The story of my life,' said Cheery. "'Oh, well, I suppose we'd better go,' said Angua, trying to disguise her relief. "'When I say that the story of my life, obviously I don't mean the whole story,' mumbled Cheery, apparently to herself, as she trailed behind them into a world blessedly without fun. The Ramkins never threw anything away. There was something worrying about their attics, and it wasn't just that they had a faint aroma of long-dead pigeons. The Ramkins labelled things. Vimes had been into the big attics in Schoon Avenue to fetch down the rocking horse and the cot, and a whole box of elderly but much-loved soft toys smelling of mothballs. Nothing that might ever be useful again was thrown away. It was carefully labelled and put in the attic. Brushing aside cobwebs with one hand and holding up a lantern with the other, Sybil led the way past boxes of men's boots various, risible puppets, string and glove, model theatre and scenery. Maybe that was their reason for their wealth. They had bought things that were built to last, and now they seldom had to buy anything at all. Except food, of course. And even then Vimes would not have been surprised to see boxes labelled Apple Cores Various or Leftovers Need Eating Up. That was a phrase of Sybil's that got to him. She'd announce at lunch, We must have the pork tonight. It needs eating up. Vimes never had an actual problem with this because he'd been raised to eat what was put in front of him, and to do it quickly, too, before someone else snatched it away. He was just puzzled at the suggestion that he was there to do the food a favour. Ah, here we are, said Sybil, lifting aside a bundle of fencing foils and lacrosse sticks. She pulled a long, thick tube out into the light. 
I didn't colour it in, of course, she said, as it was manhandled back to the stairs. That would have taken forever. Getting the heavy bundle down to the canteen took some effort and a certain amount of shoving, but eventually it was lifted onto the table and the crackling scroll removed. While Sir Reynold unrolled the big ten-foot squares and enthused, Vimes pulled out the small-scale copy that Sybil had created. It was just small enough to fit on the table. He weighed down one end with a crusted mug and put a salt cellar on the other. Methodia's notes made sad reading. Difficult reading, too, because a lot of them were half-burned, and in any case Rascal's handwriting was what might have been achieved by a spider on a trampoline during an earthquake. The man was clearly as mad as a spoon, writing notes that he wanted to keep secret from the chicken. Sometimes he'd stop writing in mid-note if he thought the chicken was watching. Apparently he was a very sad sight to see until he picked up a brush, whereupon he would work quite quietly and with a strange glow to his features. And that was his life. One huge oblong of canvas. Methodia Rascal. Born, painted famous picture, thought he was a chicken, died. Given that the man couldn't touch bottom with a long stick, how could you make sense out of anything he wrote? The only note that seemed concise, if horrible, was the one generally accepted as his last, since it was found under his slumped body. It read, Ork, Ork, it comes, it comes. He'd choked on a throatful of feathers, and on the canvas the last of the paint was still drying. Vimes's eye was caught by the message numbered arbitrarily number 39. I thought it was a guiding omen, but it screams in the night. An omen of what? And what about number 143? The dark, in the dark, like a star in chains. Vimes had made a note of that one. He'd made a note of many others, too, but the worst thing about them, or the best, if you were keen on mysteries, was that they could mean anything. You could pick your own theory. The man was half-starved and in mortal dread of a chicken that lived in his head. You might as well try to make sense of raindrops. Vimes pushed them aside and stared at the careful pencil drawing. Even at this size it was confusing. Up front faces were so large that you could see the paws on a dwarf's nose. In the distance, Sybil had meticulously copied figures that were a quarter of an inch high. Axes and clubs were being waved, spears were being pointed, there were charges and countercharges, and single combats. Across the whole length of the picture, dwarfs and trolls were locked in ferocious battle, hacking and smashing. He thought, who's missing? Sir Reynold, could you help me? He said quietly, lest the nascent thought turn tail and run. Yes, Commander said the curator, hurrying over. "'Doesn't Lady Sybil do the most exquisite?' "'She's very good, yes,' said Vimes. "'Tell me, how did Rascal know all this stuff?' "'There were many dwarf songs about it, and some troll stories. Oh, and some humans witnessed it. So Rascal could have read about it?' "'No, oh, yes. Apart from the fact that he put in the wrong part of the valley, he'd got it down quite accurately.' Vimes didn't take his gaze off the paper battle. "'Does anyone know why he put it in the wrong place, then?' he said. "'There are several theories. One is that he was deceived by the stories that the dead dwarfs were cremated at that end of the valley, but after the storm that was where many of the bodies ended up. There was also a great deal of dead wood for bonfires, but I believe he chose that end because the view is so much better.' The mountains are so dramatic. Vimes sat down, staring at the sketch, willing it to yield its secret. Everyone will know the secret in a few weeks, Mr. Shinard said. Why? Sir Reynold, was anything going to happen to the painting in the next couple of weeks? He said. Oh, yes, said the curator. We would have installed it in his new room. Anything special about that? I did tell your sergeant, Commander, said the curator a little reproachfully. It is circular. Rascal always intended it to be seen in a rind, as it were, so that the viewer could be there. And I'm nearly there too, Vimes thought. I think the cube told the dwarf something about Coombe Valley, he said, in a faraway voice, because he felt as though he was already in the valley. It told them that the place where it was found was important. Even Rascal thought it was important. They needed a map, and Rascal painted one, even if he didn't know it. Fred. Yes, sir. The dwarfs weren't bothered about damaging the bottom of the painting, 
because it doesn't contain anything important. It's just people. People move around. But, with respect, Commander, so do all those builders, said Sir Reynold. They don't matter. No matter how much the valley has changed, this picture will work, said Vimes. The glow of understanding lit his brain. But even the rivers moved over the years, and any of mines of boulders have rolled down from the mountains, said Sir Reynold. I'm told the area looks nothing like that now. Even so, said Vimes in the same dreamy voice, this map will work for thousands of years. It doesn't mark a rock or a hollow or a cave. It just marks a spot. I can pinpoint it. That is, if I had a pin. I have one, Sir Reynold said triumphantly, reaching to his lapel. I spotted it in the street yesterday, and of course we all know the old saying, see a pin and pick it up and all day long. Yes, thank you, said Vimes, taking it. He walked to the end of the table and picked up one end of the painting and dragged it back down the length of the table, the heavy paper flapping after him. He pinned the two ends together, held up the circle he had made and lowered it over his head. The truth is in the mountains, he said. For years you've been looking at a line of mountains. It's really a circle of mountains. But I knew that, said Sir Reynold. In a way, sir, but you probably didn't understand it until now, yes? Well, yes, but it was a cave, Commander. He specifically mentions a cave. That's why people have searched along the valley walls. The painting's set right in the middle near the river. Then there's something we still don't know, said Vimes. I'll find out what it is when I get there. There, he'd said it. But he'd known that he was going to go, known for how long? It seemed like forever. But had it seemed like forever yesterday, this afternoon? He could see the place in his mind's eye. Vimes at Coombe Valley. He could practically taste the air. He could hear the roaring of the river, which ran as cold as ice. Sam, Sybil began. No, this has got to be sorted out, Vimes said quickly. I don't care about the stupid secret. Those deep downers murdered our dwarfs, remember? They think the painting is a map they can use, and that's why they're going there. I've got to go after them. Look, Sam, if... Sybil tried. We can't afford a war between the trolls and the dwarfs, dear. That business the other night was just a dumb gang fight. A real war in Ankh-Morpork would wreck the place. And somehow it's all tied up with this. I agree. I want to come too, Sybil screamed. Besides, I'll be perfectly safe if... What? Vimes gaped at his wife while his mental gears ripped into reverse. No, it's too dangerous. Sam Vimes, I've dreamed of visiting Coombe Valley all my life, so don't you think for one moment you're gallivanting off to see it and leave me at home? I don't gallivant. I've never gallivanted. I don't know how to vant. I don't even have a galley. But there's going to be a war there soon. Then I shall tell them we're not involved, said Sybil calmly. That won't work. Then it won't work in Ankh-Morpork either, said Sybil, with the air of some player cunningly knocking out four dwarfs in one go. Sam, you know you're going to lose this. There's no point in arguing. Besides, I speak dwarfish. We'll take young Sam, too. No. So that's all sorted, then, said Sybil, apparently struck by sudden deafness. If you want to catch up with the dwarfs, I suggest we leave as soon as possible. Sir Reynold turned to her with his mouth open. But, Lady Sybil, armies are already massing there. That's no place for a lady, eh? Vimes winced. Sybil had made up her mind. This was going to be like watching that dwarf being flamed by dragons all over again. Lady Sybil's bosom, which she was allowed to have, expanded as she took a deep breath. It seemed to lift her slightly off the ground. Sir Reynold, she said, with a side order of ice. In the year of the lice, my great-grandmother once cooked, personally, a full dinner for eighteen in a military redoubt that was entirely surrounded by bloodthirsty clatchians and she felt able to include sorbet and nuts. My grandmother, in the year of the quiet monkey, defended our embassy in Sudopolis against a mob with no assistance but that offered by a gardener, a trained parrot, and a pan of hot cooking fat. My late aunt, when our coach was once held up at Bow Point by two desperate highwaymen, gave them such a talking to that they actually ran away crying for their mothers, Sir Reynold, their mothers. We are no strangers to danger, Sir Reynold. May I also remind you that quite probably half the dwarfs who fought at Coombe Valley were ladies. No one told them to stay at home. So that's settled then, thought Vimes. We... damn. Captain, he said, send someone to find that dwarf Grag Bashfulson, will you? 
Tell him Commander Vimes presents his compliments and will be leaving first thing in the morning. Er, uh, right, sir, will do, said Carrot. How did he know I'd be going, Vimes wondered. I suppose it was inevitable. But he could have hung us out to dry if he'd said we'd mistreated that dwarf. And he's one of Mr. Shine's pupils, I'll bet on it. Good idea to keep an eye on him, perhaps. When did Lord Vetinari sleep? Presumably the man must get his head down at some point, Vimes had reasoned. Everyone slept. Catnaps could get you by for a while, but sooner or later you need a solid eight hours, right? It was almost midnight, and there was Vetinari at his desk, fresh as a daisy and chilly as morning dew. I really do need you here, Vimes. Carrot can look after things. They've quietened down anyway. I think most of the serious troublemakers have headed for Coombe Valley. A good reason, one might say, of you not to go, Vimes. I have agents for this sort of thing. More murder in the dark, you mean, said Vimes. No, sir. This is a straightforward police matter. Not murder, Vimes, not murder, said Vetinari. One could call it an acceptable level of nemesis. Call it what you like, sir. I don't like it. I intend to bring the suspects back alive. It's a thing we try to do in the watch. No, Vimes, this is a matter for the low king. I shall send him a clax directly. He has agents too, does he? said Vimes sourly. Indeed, even in this city. Just as I have in his. That is called politics, Vimes. It is a thing we try to do in the government. Agents here spying on us? I thought we were chums with the low king. Of course we are. And the more we know about each other, the friendlier we shall remain. We'd hardly bother to spy on our enemies. What would be the point? If you don't let me take a squad to Coombe Valley, Vimes growled. Yes. What will you do? said Vetinari. Sibyl will come and ask you. Vetinari gazed at Vimes in silent wonder. Lady Sibyl is letting you go, he said. She's coming with me. So are Fred and Nobby, and I want to take Angua, Sally, Detritus, and Cheery. Multi-species, sir, that always helps. And the summoning dark? What about that, Vimes? Oh, don't look at me like that. It's common talk among the dwarfs. One of the dying dwarfs put a curse on everyone who is in the mine, I'm told. I wouldn't know about that, sir, said Vimes, resorting to the wooden expression that so often saw him through. It's mystic. We don't do mystic in the watch. It's not a joke, Vimes. It's very old magic, I understand. So old, indeed, that most dwarfs have forgotten that it is magic. And it's powerful. It will be tracking them. I'll just look out for a big floaty eye with a tail, then, shall I? said Vimes. That should make it easy. Vimes, I know you must be aware that the symbol is not the thing itself, said the patrician. Yes, sir, I know, but magic has no place in coppering. We don't use it to find culprits. We don't use it to get confessions. Because you can't trust the bloody stuff, sir. It's got a mind of its own. If there's a curse chasing these bastards, well, that's its business. But if I reach them first, sir, then they'll be my prisoners, and it'll have to get past me. Vimes, Arch-Chancellor Ridcully tells me he believes it may be a quasi-demonic entity that is untold millions of years old. I've set my piece, sir, said Vimes, staring at a point just above Lord Vetinari's head, and it is my duty to catch up with these people. I believe they may be able to help me with my inquiries. But you have no evidence, Vimes, and you are going to need very solid evidence. Right, so I want to bring him back here, eyeballs on a string or not. Them and their damn guards, so's I can inquire. Someone will tell me something. And it'll also be to your personal satisfaction, said Vetinari sharply. Is this a trick question, sir? Well done, well done, said Vetinari softly. Lady Sybil is a remarkable woman, Vimes. Yes, sir, she is. Vimes left. After a while, Vetinari's chief clerk, Drumnot, entered the room on velvet feet and placed a cup of tea in front of Vetinari. Thank you, Drumnot. You were listening? Ah, yes, sir. The commander seemed very forthright. They invaded his home, Drumnot. Quite, sir. Vetinari leaned back and stared at the ceiling. Tell me, Drumnot, are you a betting man at all? I have been known to have the occasional little flutter, sir. Given, then, a contest between an invisible and very powerful quasi-demonic thing of pure vengeance on the one hand... And the commander on the other, where would you wager, say, one dollar? I wouldn't, sir. That looks like one that would go to the judges. Yes, said Vetinari, 
staring thoughtfully at the closed door. Yes, indeed. I don't use magic, thought Vimes, walking through the rain toward Unseen University. But sometimes I tell, I tell lies. He avoided the main entrance and headed as circumspectly as possible for Wizard's Passage, where, halfway down, university access for all was available via several loose bricks. Generations of rascally drunk student wizards had used them to get back in late at night. Later on they'd become very important and powerful wizards, with full beards and fuller stomachs, but had never lifted a finger to have the wall repaired. It was, after all, traditional. Nor was it usually patrolled by the lobsters. The university porters, or bledlows, who doubled with rather more enthusiasm as its under-proctors, a private police force. They commanded their nickname for being thick-shelled, liable to turn red when hot, and having the smallest brain for their size of any known creature. They believed in tradition even more than the wizards. On this occasion, though, one was lurking in the shadows, and jumped when Vimes tapped him on the shoulder. "'Oh, it's you, Commander Vimes, sir. It's me, sir. Wiggly, sir. The Arch-Chancellor is waiting for you in the gardener's hut, sir. Follow me, sir. Mum's the word, eh, sir?' Vimes trailed after Wiggly across the dark, squelchy lawns. Oddly, though, he didn't feel so tired now. Days and days of bad sleep, and he felt quite fresh in a fuzzy sort of way. It was the smell of the chase, that's what it was. He'd pay for it later. Wiggly, looking both ways with a conspiratorial air that would have attracted instant attention had anyone been watching, opened the door of the garden shed. There was a large figure waiting inside. "'Commander!' it bellowed happily. "'What larks, eh? Very cloak and dagger!' Only heavy rain could possibly muffle the voice of Arch-Chancellor Ridcully when he was feeling cheerful. "'Could you keep it down a bit, Arch-Chancellor?' said Vimes, shutting the door quickly. "'Sorry! I mean, sorry!' said the wizard. "'Do take a seat. The compost sacks are quite acceptable.' "'Well, er, uh, how may I help you, Sam?' "'Can we agree for now that you can't?' said Vimes. "'Intriguing! Do continue!' said Ridcully, leaning closer. "'You know I won't have magic used in the watch,' Vimes went on. As he sat down in the semi-darkness, a coiled-up hosepipe ambushed him from above, as they do, and he had to wrestle it to the shed floor. "'I do, sir, and I respect you for it, although there are those that think you're a damn silly fool.' "'Well,' Vimes said, trying to put damn silly fool behind him. The fact is, I must get to Coombe Valley very fast. Er, uh, very fast indeed. Well, I might say magically fast, said Ridcully. As it were, said Vimes, fidgeting. He really hated having to do this. And what had he sat on? Hmm, said Ridcully. But without, I imagine, any significant hocus-pocus? You appear uncomfortable, sir. Vimes triumphantly held up a large onion. Sorry he said, tossing it aside. No, definitely no pocus. Possibly a little hocus. I just need an edge. They got a day's start on me. I see. You'll be travelling alone? No, there will have to be eleven of us. Two coaches. My word. And disappearing in a puff of smoke to reappear elsewhere is, uh, out of the question. I just need an edge, said the wizard. Yes. Something magical in its cause, but not in its effect. Nothing too obvious. And no chance of anyone being turned into a frog or anything like that, said Vimes quickly. Of course, said Ridcully. He clapped his hands together. Well, Commander, I'm afraid we can't help you. Meddling in things like this is not what wizarding is all about. He lowered his voice and went on. We'll particularly not be able to help you if you have the coaches empty around the back in, oh, call it about an hour? Oh, I have right, said Vimes, trying to catch up. You're not going to make them fly or anything, are you? "'We're not going to do anything, Commander,' said Ridcully jovially, slapping him on the back. "'I thought that was agreed. "'And I think also you should leave now, although, of course, you have, in fact, not been here. "'And neither have I. "'I say, this spying business is pretty clever, eh?' "'When Vimes was gone, Mustrum Ridcully sat back, lit his pipe, "'and, as an afterthought, used the last of the match to light the candle lantern on the potting table. "'The gardener could get pretty acerbic if people messed about with his shed, "'so perhaps he ought to tidy up a bit.' He stared at the floor, where a tumbled hosepipe and a fallen onion made what looked at a casual glance like a large eyeball with a tail. The rain cooled Vimes down. It had cooled down the streets, too. You have to be really keen to riot in the rain. Besides, news of last night had got around. No one was sure, of course, and such were the effects of fluff and big hammer that a large, if elementary, school of thought had been left uncertain about what really happened. They woke up feeling bad, right? Something must have happened, and tonight the rain was setting in. 
so maybe it was better to stay in the pub. He walked through the wet, whispering darkness, mind ablaze. How fast could those dwarfs travel? Some of them sounded pretty old, but they'd be tough and old. Even so, the roads in that direction were none too good, and a body could only stand so much shaking. And Sybil was taking young Sam. That was stupid. Except that it wasn't stupid, not after dwarfs had broken into your home. Home was where you had to feel safe. If you didn't feel safe, it wasn't home. Against all common sense, he agreed with Sybil. Home was where they were together. She'd already sent off an urgent clack to some old chum of hers, who lived near the valley. She seemed to think it was going to be some kind of family outing. There was a group of dwarfs hanging around on a corner, heavily armed. Maybe the bars were all full. Or maybe they needed cooling down too, no law against hanging around, right? Wrong, growled Vimes as he drew nearer. Come along, boys. Say something wrong. Lay hold of a weapon. Move slightly. Breathe loudly. Give me something that could be stretched to in self-defence. It'd be my word against yours, and believe me, lads, I'm unlikely to leave you capable of saying a single damn thing. The dwarfs took one clear look at the approaching vision, haloed in torchlight and mist, and took to their heels. Right. The entity known as the Summoning Dark sped through streets of eternal night, past misty buildings of memory that wavered at its passage. It was getting there. It was getting there. It was having to change the habits of millennia, but it was finding ways in, even if they were no bigger than keyholes. It had never had to work this hard before, never had to move this fast. It was exhilarating. But always, when it paused by some grating or unguarded chimney, it heard the pursuit. It was slow, but it never stopped following. Sooner or later, it would catch up. Greg Bashfulson lodged in a subdivided cellar in Cheap Street. The rent wasn't much, but he had to admit that neither was the accommodation. He could lie on his very narrow bed and touch all four walls, or, rather, three walls and a heavy curtain that separated his little space from that of the family of nineteen dwarfs that occupied the rest of the cellar. But meals were included, and they respected his privacy. It was something to have a Greg as a lodger, even if this one seemed rather young and showed his face. It was still something to impress the neighbours with. On the other side of the curtain, children were squabbling, a baby was crying, and there was the smell of rat and cabbage casserole. Someone was sharpening an axe, and someone else was snoring. For a dwarf in Ankh-Morpork, solitude was something that you had to cultivate on the inside. Books and papers filled the space that wasn't bed. Bashfulson's desk was a board laid across his knees. He was reading a battered book. Its cover cracked and mouldy, and the runes passing under his eye said, It has no strength in this world. To fulfil any purpose, the dark must find a champion, a living creature it can bend to its will. Bashfulson sighed. He'd read the phrase a dozen times, hoping he could make it mean something other than the obvious. He copied the words into his notebook anyway. Then he put the notebook in his satchel, swung the satchel onto his back, went and paid Toyin Footstamper two weeks' rent in advance, and stepped out into the rain. Vimes didn't remember going to sleep. He didn't remember sleeping. He surfaced from darkness when Carrots shook him awake. "'The coaches are in the yard, Mr. Vimes!' "'Whiz up!' murmured Vimes, blinking in the light. "'I've told people to load them up, sir, but—' "'But what?' Vimes sat up. "'I think you'd better come and see, sir.' When Vimes stepped out into the damp dawn, two coaches were indeed standing in the yard. Detritus was idly watching the loading while leaning on the peacemaker. Carrot hurried over when he saw the commander. "'It's the wizard, sir,' he said. "'They've done something.' The coaches looked normal enough to Vimes, and he said so. "'Oh, they look fine,' said Carrot. He reached down and put his hand on the door sill and added, "'But they do this!' He lifted the laden coach over his head. "'You shouldn't be able to do that,' said Vimes. "'That's right, sir,' said Carrot, lowering the coach gently onto the cobbles. "'It doesn't get any heavier with people inside, either. "'And if you come over here, sir, they've done something to the horses, too.' "'Any idea what they've done, Captain?' "'None whatsoever, sir. "'The coaches were just outside the university. "'Haddock and I drove them down here. "'Very light, of course. "'It's the harnesses that are worrying me. "'See here, sir.' "'I see the leather's very thick,' said Vimes. And what are all those copper knobs? Something magical? Could be, sir. Something happens at thirteen miles an hour. I don't know what. Carrot 
patted the side of the coach, which slid away. The thing is, sir, I don't know how much of an edge this gives you. What? Surely a weightless coach would— Oh, it'll help, sir, especially on the inclines. But horses can only go so fast for so long, sir, and once they've got the coach moving, it's a rolling weight and not so much of a problem. Thirteen miles an hour, Vimes mused. Hm, that's pretty fast. Well, the mail coaches are getting nine or ten miles an hour average on many runs now, said Carrot, but the roads will get a lot worse when you get near Coombe Valley. You don't think it'll take wing, do you? I think the wizards would have said so if it was going to do something like that, sir. But it's funny you should mention it, because there's seven broomsticks nailed underneath each coach. What? Why don't they just float out of the yard? Magic, sir. I think they just compensate for the weight. Good grief, yes. Why didn't I think of that, said Vimes sourly. And that's why I don't like magic, Captain, because it's magic. You can't ask questions. It's magic. It doesn't explain anything. It's magic. You don't know where it comes from. It's magic. That's what I don't like about magic. It does everything by magic. That's the significant factor, sir. There's no doubt about it, said Carrot. I'll just see to the last of the packing, if you'll excuse me. Vimes glared at the coaches. He probably shouldn't have brought in the wizards, but where was the choice? Oh, they could probably have sent Sam Vimes all that way in a puff of smoke and the blink of an eye, but who'd actually arrive there and who'd come back? How would he know if it was him? He was certain that people were not supposed to disappear like that. Sam Vimes had always been by nature a pedestrian. That's why he was also going to take Willikins, who knew how to drive. He'd also demonstrated to Vimes his ability to throw a common fish knife so hard that it was quite difficult to pull it out of the wall. At times like this, Vimes liked to see a skill like that in a butler. "'Excuse me, sir,' said Detritus behind him. "'Could I have a word, personal?' "'Yeah, of course,' said Vimes. "'Er, uh, I uh, hope what I said yesterday in the cells wasn't going to—' "'Can't remember a word of it,' said Vimes. Detritus looked relieved. "'Thank you, sir. Er, uh, I want to take young Brick with us, sir. He's got no kin here, doesn't even know what clan he is. He'll only get messed up again if I take my eye off of him.' and he's never seen the mountains, never been outside the city even. There was a pleading look in the troll's eyes. Vimes recollected that his marriage to Ruby was happy but childless. Well, we don't seem to have a weight problem, he said. All right, but you're to keep an eye on him, OK? The troll beamed. Yes, sir. I'll see you don't regret it, sir. Breakfast, Sam, called Sybil from the doorway. Horrible suspicion gripped Vimes, and he'd hurried over to the other coach where Carrot was strapping on the last bag. Who packed the food? Did Sybil pack the food? he said. I think so, sir. Was there fruit? said Vimes, probing the horror. I believe so, sir, quite a lot. And vegetables. Some bacon, surely? Vimes was nearly begging. Very good for a long journey, bacon. It travels well. I think it's staying at home today, said Carrot. I have to tell you, sir, that Lady Sybil has found out about the bacon sandwich arrangement. She said to tell you the game was up, sir. I am the commander around here, you know said Vimes, with as much hauteur as he could muster on an empty stomach. Yes, sir, but Lady Sybil has a very quiet way of being firm, sir. She has, hasn't she? said Vimes as they strolled toward the building. I'm a very lucky man, you know, he added, just in case Carrot may have got the wrong impression. Yes, sir, you are indeed. Captain! They turned. Someone was hurrying through the gate. He had two swords strapped to his back. Ah, Special Constable Hancock, said Carrot, stepping forward. Do you have something for me? Er, uh, yes, Captain. Hancock looked nervously at Vimes. This is official business, Andy, said Vimes reassuringly. Not much to give you, sir, but I asked around, and a young lady sent at least two self-coded droppers to Bionk in the last week. That means it goes to the main tower there and gets handed over to whoever turns up with the right authorization. We don't have to know who they are. Well done, said Carrot. Any description? Young lady with short hair is the best I could get. Signed the message, Akalas. Vimes burst out laughing. Well, that's about it. Thank you, Special Constable Hancock, very much. Crime and the clacks is going to be a growing problem, said Carrot, sadly, when they were alone again. Quite likely, Captain, said Vimes. But here and now we know that our Sally is not being straight with us. We can't be certain it's her, sir, said Carrot. Oh, no said Vimes happily. This quite cheers me up. It's one of the lesser-known failings of the vampire. No one knows why they do it. It goes with having big windows and easily torn curtains. A sort of undeath wish, you might say. However clever they are, they can't resist thinking that no one will recognise their name if they spell it backwards. 
Let's go. Vimes turned to head into the building and noticed a small, neat figure standing patiently by the door. It had the look of someone who was quite happy to wait. He sighed. I bargain without an axe in my hand, eh? Breakfast, Mr. Bashfulson, he said. This is all rather fun, said Sybil an hour later, as the coaches headed out of the city. Do you remember when we last went on holiday, Sam? That wasn't really a holiday, dear, said Vimes. Above them, young Sam swung back and forth in a little hammock, cooing. Well, it was very interesting all the same, said Sybil. Yes, dear, werewolves tried to eat me. Vimes sat back. The coach was comfortably upholstered and well sprung. At the moment, while it threaded through the traffic, the magical loss of weight was hardly noticeable. Would it mean anything? How fast could a bunch of old dwarfs travel? If they really had taken a big wagon, the coaches would catch them tomorrow, when the mountains were still a distant prospect. In the meantime, at least he could get some rest. He pulled out a battered volume titled Walking in the Coombe Valley by Eric Wheelbrace, a man who apparently had walked on just about everything bigger than a sheep track in the near ram tops. And even then had been belabouring mountain goats on apparently sheer cliff faces, and, while pebbles slid and bounced around him, was clearly accusing them of obstructing his right to roam. Eric believed very firmly that the land belonged to the people, and also that he was more the people than anyone else was. Eric went everywhere with a map encased in waterproof material on a string around his neck. Such people are not to be trifled with. It had a sketch map, the only actual map of the valley Vimes had seen. Eric wasn't a half-bad sketch artist. Coombe Valley was... well, Coombe Valley was basically a drain, that's what it was, nearly thirty miles of soft limestone rock edged by mountains of harder rock, so that what you had would have been a canyon if it wasn't so wide. One end was almost on the snow line, the other merged into the plains. It was said that even clouds kept away from the desolation that was Coombe Valley. Maybe they did, but that didn't matter. The valley got the water anyway, from meltwater and the hundreds of waterfalls that poured over its walls from the mountains that cupped it. One of those falls, the Tears of the King, was half a mile high. The Coombe River didn't just rise in this valley, it leapt and danced in this valley. By the time it was halfway down this valley, it was a crisscrossing of thundering waters, forever merging and parting. They carried and hurled great rocks and played with whole fallen trees from the dripping forests colonising the scree that had built up against the walls. They gurgled into holes and rose again miles away as fountains. They had no mappable course. A good storm higher up in the mountains could bring house-sized rocks and half a stricken woodland down in the flood, blocking the sinkholes and piling up dams. Some of these could survive for years, becoming little islands in the leaping waters, growing little forests and little meadows and colonies of big birds. Then some key rock would be shifted by a random river, and within an hour it would all be gone. Nothing that couldn't fly lived in the valley, at least for long. The dwarfs had tried to tame it back before the first battle. It hadn't worked. Hundreds of trolls and dwarfs had been swept up in the famous flood, and many had never been found again. Coombe Valley had taken them all into its sinkholes and chambers and caverns, and had kept them. There were places in the valley where a man could drop a coloured cork into a swirling sinkhole and wait for more than twenty minutes before it bobbed up on a fountain less than a dozen yards away. Eric himself had seen this trick done by a guide, Vimes read, who demanded half a dollar for the demonstration. Oh yes, people visited the valley, human sightseers, poets, and artists looking for inspiration in the ragged, uncompromising wildness and there were human guides who'd take them up there for a hefty price. For a few extra dollars they'd tell the history of the place. They'd tell you how the wind and the rocks and the roaring of the waters carried the sounds of ancient battle continuing in death. They'd say, maybe all those trolls and dwarfs the valley took are still fighting, down there in the dark maze of caves and thundering torrents. One admitted to Eric that when he was a boy, during a cool summer when the melt waters were pretty low, he'd roped down into one of the sinkholes, because, like all such stories, the history of Coombe Valley wouldn't have been complete without rumours of vast treasures swept down into the dark, and had himself heard, above the sound of the water, battle noises and the shouting of dwarfs. No, sir, honestly, sir, it chilled my blood so it did, sir. Why, thank you, sir, very much, sir. Vimes sat up in his seat. Is that true? If that man had gone a little further, would he have found the little talking cube that Methodia Rascal had been unlucky enough to take home? 
Eric had dismissed it as an attempt to scrounge another dollar. And probably it was, but— No, the cube would surely have been long gone by then. Even so, it was an intriguing thought. The driver's hatch slid back. Outside the city, sir. Clear road ahead, Willikins reported. Thank you. Vimes stretched, and looked across at Sybil. Well, this is where we find out. Hang on to young Sam. I'm sure Mustram wouldn't do anything dangerous, Sam, said Sybil. I don't know about that, said Vimes, opening the door. I'm sure he wouldn't mean to. He swung himself out and hauled himself on the roof of the coach with a helping hand from detritus. The coach was moving well. The sun was shining. On either side of the highway, the cabbage fields lent their gentle perfume to the air. Vimes settled down beside the butler. "'Okay,' he said. "'Everyone holding on to something? Good. Let them go.' Willikins cracked the whip. There was a mild jolt as the horses stretched, and Vimes felt the coach speed up. And that seemed to be it. He'd expected something a little more impressive. They were gradually going faster, yes, but that in itself didn't seem very magical. "'I reckon about twelve miles an hour now, sir,' said Willikins. "'That's pretty good. They're running well without—' Something was happening to the harnesses. The copper discs were sparking. "'Look at the cabbages, sir!' Detritus shouted. On either side of the road, cabbages were bursting into flames and rocketing out of the ground, and still the horses went faster. "'It's about power!' yelled Vimes above the wind. "'We're running on cabbages! And up!' He stopped. The rear two horses were rising gently in the air. As he stared, the lead pair rose too. He risked turning in his seat. The other coach was keeping up with them. He could clearly see Fred Colon's pink face staring ahead in rigid terror. When Vimes turned back to look ahead, all four horses were off the ground. And there was a fifth horse, larger than the other four, and transparent. It was visible only because of the dust and the occasional glint of light off an invisible flank. It was, in fact, what you got if you took away a horse but left the movement of a horse, the speed of a horse, the spirit of a horse, that part of a horse which came alive in the rushing of the wind the part of a horse that was, in fact, horse. There was hardly any sound now. Perhaps sound was unable to keep up. Sir, said Willikins quietly. Yes, said Vimes, his eyes streaming. It took us less than a minute to go that last mile. I timed us between milestones, sir. Sixty miles an hour? Don't be daft, man. A coach can't go that fast. Just as you say, sir. A milestone flashed past. Out of the corner of his ear, Willikins heard Vimes counting under his breath, until before very long another stone fell away behind them. "'Wizards, eh?' said Vimes weakly, staring ahead again. "'Indeed, sir,' said Willikins. "'May I suggest that once we are through Quirm, we head straight across the grass country?' "'The roads up there are pretty bad, you know,' said Vimes. "'So I believe, sir. However, that will not in fact matter,' said the butler, not taking his eyes off the unrolling road ahead. "'Why not?' If we try to go at speed over those rough— I was referring obliquely, sir, to the fact that we are not precisely touching the ground any more. Vimes, clinging with care to the rail, looked over the side. The wheels were turning idly. The road just below them was a blur. Ahead of them the spirit of the horse galloped serenely onwards. There's plenty of coaching inns around, Quirm, he said. We could, uh, stop for lunch. A late breakfast, sir. Mail coach ahead, sir, holds tight. A tiny square block on the road ahead was getting bigger quite fast. Willikins twitched on the reins, Vimes had a momentary vision of rearing horses, and the mail coach was a dwindling dot, soon hidden by the smoke of flaming brassicas. "'Dem milestones is going past real fast now,' Detritus observed in a conversational tone of voice. Behind him, Brick lay flat on the roof of the coach with his eyes shut tight, having never before been in a world where the sky went all the way to the ground. There were brass rails around the top of the coach, and he was leaving fingerprints in them. "'Could we try braking?' said Vimes. "'Look out, hay cart!' "'That only stops the wheels spinning, sir,' yelled Willikins, as the cart went by with a whoom and fell back into the distance. "'Try pulling on the reins a little. At this speed, sir?' Vimes slid back the hatch behind him. Sybil had young Sam on her knee, and was pulling a woolly jumper over his head. "'Is everything all right, dear?' he ventured. She looked up and smiled. "'Lovely smooth ride, Sam!' "'Aren't we going rather fast, though?' "'Er, uh, could you please sit with your back to the horses?' said Sam. "'And hold on tight to young Sam. It might be a bit... bumpy.' He watched her shift seats. Then he shut the hatch and yelled to Willikins, "'Now!' Nothing seemed to happen. In Vimes's mind the milestones were already going zip, 
zip, as they flashed past. Then the flying world slowed, while in the fields on either side hundreds of burning cabbages leapt toward the sky, trailing oily smoke. The horse of light and air disappeared, and the real horses dropped gently to the road, going from floating statues to beasts in full gallop without a stumble. He heard a brief scream as the rear coach tore past and swerved into a field full of cauliflowers, where eventually it squelched to a flatulent halt. And then there was stillness, except for the occasional thud of a falling cabbage. Detritus was comforting Brick, who'd not picked a good day to go cold turkey. It was turning out to be frozen rock. A skylark, safely above cabbage range, sang in the blue sky. Below, except for the whimpering of Brick, all was silent. Absent-mindedly, Vimes pulled a half-cooked leaf off his helmet and flicked it away. "'Well, that was fun,' he said, his voice a little distant. He got down carefully and opened the coach door. "'Everyone all right in here?' he said. "'Yes. Why are we stopped?' said Sybil. "'We ran out of, uh, "'Well, we just ran out,' said Vimes. "'I'd better go and check that everyone else is all right.' The milestone nearby proclaimed that it was but two miles to Querm. Vimes fished out the gooseberry as a red-hot cabbage smacked into the road behind him. "'Good morning,' he said brightly to the surprised imp. "'What is the time, please?' "'Eh, nine minutes to eight, insert name here,' said the imp. "'So that would mean a speed slightly above one mile a minute,' mused Vimes. "'Very good.' Moving like a sleepwalker, he walked into the field on the other side of the road and followed the trail of stricken, steaming greens until he reached the other coach. People were climbing out of it. "'Everyone okay?' he said. "'Breakfast today will be boiled cabbage, baked cabbage, fried cabbage.' He stepped smartly aside as a steaming cauliflower hit the ground and exploded. "'And cauliflower surprise. Where's Fred?' "'Looking for somewhere to throw up,' said Angua. "'Good man. We'll take a minute or two to rest here, I think.' With that, Sam Vimes walked back to the milestone, sat down next to it, put his arms around it, and held on tight until he felt better. You could catch up with the dwarfs long before they're near Coombe Valley. Good grief, at the speed we did earlier you'd have to watch out in case you smashed into the back of them. Vimes's thoughts nagged at him as Willikins drove the coach, at a very sedate speed, out of Querm and then, on a clear stretch of road, unleashed the hidden horsepower until they were bowling along at forty miles every hour. That seemed quite fast enough. No one was hurt, after all. You could get to Coombe Valley by nightfall. Yes, but that was not the plan. Okay, he thought, but what was the plan, exactly? Well, it helped that Sybil knew more or less everybody, or at least everybody who was female, of a certain age, and who had been to the Querm College for Young Ladies at the same time as Sybil. There appeared to be hundreds of them. They all seemed to have names like Bunny or Bubbles. They kept in touch meticulously. They'd all married influential or powerful men. They all hugged one another when they met, and went on about the good old days in Form 3B or whatever and if they acted together, they could probably run the world. Or, it occurred to Vimes, might already be doing so. They were ladies who organise. Vimes did his best, but he could never keep track of them. A web of correspondence held them all together, and he marvelled at Sybil's ability to be concerned over the problems of a child whom she'd never met, of a woman she hadn't seen in twenty-five years. It was a female thing. So they would be staying in the town near the foot of the valley, with a lady currently known only as Bunty, whose husband was a local magistrate. According to Sybil, he had his own police force. Vimes translated this in the privacy of his head as he's got his own gang of thuggish, toothless, evil-smelling thief-takers, since that was what you generally got in these little towns. Still, they might be useful. Beyond that, there was no plan. He intended to find the dwarfs and capture and drag as many as possible back to Ankh-Morpork, but that was an intention, not a plan. It was a firm intention, though. Five people had been murdered. You couldn't just turn your back on that. He'd drag them back and lock them up and throw everything at them and see what stuck. He doubted it they had many friends now. Of course it'd get political, it always did, but at least people would know that he'd done all he could, and it was the best he could do. With any luck, it would stop anyone else getting funny ideas. And then there was the damn secret. But it occurred to him that if he did find it, and it simply was proof that the dwarfs ambushed the trolls, or the trolls ambushed the dwarfs, or they both ambushed each other at the same time, well, he might as well drop it down a hole. It wouldn't change anything, and it was unlikely to be a pot of gold. People didn't take a lot of money onto battlefields because there wasn't very much to spend it on. Anyway, it had been a good start. 
they'd clawed some time, hadn't they? They could keep up a cracking pace and change horses at every staging in, couldn't they? Why was he trying to persuade himself? It made sense to slow down. It was dangerous to go fast. If we keep up this pace, we might get there the day after tomorrow, right? he said to Willikins as they rattled on between stands.